One Week Season. OWS fam, the nation, my dudes and dudettes. I've kind of clung to that intro and I'm kind of liking it. Anyway, I digress. Thanks for coming to spend another Saturday with us this week. Week five, it's hard to believe that we're already into week five. I feel like the season just goes faster and faster every year. Hopefully the additional game this year will help us out with that a little bit. But uh, Zandamir, my man, how are we doing today? X, you got technical difficulties, bro? All right, while we wait for Xandamir, um, this week, man, this is, we, we talked about the, the trickiness and the, the uniqueness of last week, how there was really, um, it was very different from the first three weeks in the sense that pricing was starting to get tight and we had no, not as many clear, X, I got you, dude. What's going on, man? Let's see. Is it working now? I got you, man. Sounds great. Awesome. Okay. Sorry about that. That's all um, right, dude. Yeah. I want to say you got to play more showdown. You get like, you get so many more slates that way. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like season I know. Last longer. I'm just honestly, dude, I just cannot like get good at it. So I just feel like I'm pissing away money every time. Yeah. I mean, it's a totally different format. It yeah. takes like, you know, it's, it, but I mean, the same principles apply, right? Like find leverage, embrace variance. Like mm-hmm. the, same, the same principles apply. It's just an incredibly high variance format of play. I think to be to be really successful um, with the contest selection that is available for showdown, like yeah, they they have like single entry and three max, but like that it's a whole different ballgame when you talk about like managing and leveraging variance from the sample size of one game. So like what I'm really really good at is like doesn't transfer as well. Um. So I feel like I would have to get really, really good at MME and practice in like the 10 cent, 25 cent contest before I really try to take it seriously. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I think you uh, like you're playing for first, right? I mean, other than some very odd finishes where like you get like a solo first place finish and then a solo second place finish, like you're really playing for mm-hmm. first, you know, you're not going to a top 10 finish is, is not likely to do you very much. Most slates because you know, the, the first place probably has a tie with like 10 lineups. So your, your, your third place finish is actually 15th or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I know you've been patient enough with me to, we, we chat behind the scenes a little bit about showdown and stuff especially last year when I was really trying to pick it up, but um, I just couldn't, I couldn't focus that much brain power on it this year. But yeah, maybe I will moving forward. We'll see. Let's anyway. talk about main slate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, like I was saying a little bit before we, after the first three weeks, we grew accustomed to kind of just being able to play whatever the hell we wanted. And then week four, we saw, a new unique slate where pricing was tight and there weren't as many smash spots. Well, week five kind of takes that to another level in that, you know, we, we don't have six games priced at 49 points or over. We don't have clear smash spots, the highest game total on the slate. Um, from a macro perspective, I think is going to be played incorrectly by the field. And that's the, in the, the Dallas, the giants game we'll, that we'll talk about here shortly. But 
it's a very unique slate in the sense not only in the sense of like every unique every slate is unique but like from what we've seen up to this point in 2021 so uh lots of good stuff um with that man we always talk about and we always start with you know what are what are like the macro decision points or what are the biggest funnels for the week so what are you seeing with this slate in particular with you know macro decisions and funnels yeah i was trying to kind of figure out where i think the field's going to go and i mean outside of just individual player ownership but in a broader sense and i think you're right that dallas game looks like it's going to attract a lot of attention um and it's the highest total game on the slate right i think it's fair that it's a reasonable game to consider um but i think that it's attracting more attention than it deserves um from a roster construction standpoint uh we've got two very high-priced really chalky plays in derrick henry and Devontae adams who are projecting to be two of the highest owned plays on the slate uh we've got uh at tight end it looks like another pay down at tight end week as all the highest projected ownership tight ends are, are really cheap um it's probably another pay down at defense week and i don't know if that's another pay down at defense week or if that's just what the field is like so used to doing now that every week is a pay down at defense week nowadays which might be the case um but it looks like most of the yeah i think that's true on DraftKings especially and um i think that it looks like most of the ownership at those two positions is congregating on the cheap side so i think what we're likely to see are a lot of rosters that look something like derrick henry a mid-tier running back like a Damian Williams or an Alexander Madison if Cook is ruled out, or maybe a Earl or Leonard Fournette, um, a Devontae Adams, and then a couple mid-range uh, wide receivers, a cheap tight end, a cheap defense, and then you've got a little bit of flexibility on like your quarterback and your uh, your last uh, your your flex spot. But I think that's probably like the most common construction that I'm seeing. I don't know. What do you what do you think? You're good. You're better than I am at picking out these the construction themes. Yeah, well, first of all, you did not read the end around, correct? No, was it posted? I didn't even see when it was when it got posted. Yeah, it it came out just like an hour, hour, hour and a half ago, so it hasn't been out for very long. But uh, basically, I started off by saying, really, in the the macro perspective of the slate, right? We have a lot of questionable players, and there's really those can be broken down into two tiers of questionable players. We have like the questionable, like we can call them game time decisions, and we have the questionable players who are you know, more likely to play than not. Um, in that vein, we, we're going to have a lot of overnight Saturday night and early Sunday news that could really alter the overall state of this slate. And with that being said, right now, currently, it looks like it's a Derrick Henry and Devontae Adams or not weak. Like that is the main decision points, I think, for fantasy players as they're filling out their rosters because those two players are very clearly the one of the or I guess two of the more sure bets when it comes to looking for guaranteed points and I think that is where the field is going to start this week is they're going to be looking for those guaranteed points and building around that the other read that I get on the slate is I get the feeling that game stacks and playing to game environments are going to go highly highly under owned and the reason i say that is because we don't have those clear spots this week but we still have these games that could develop into you know plus game environments for us where i think that the field is going to be attacking at a much lower rate when i broke down the chalk build in the end around um and most of you will probably haven't read it yet you'll read it here shortly but 
It was basically along the same lines as you were saying, X. Like, it's very clear that people are going to want to try and play Derrick Henry, and he is likeliest to be paired with a mid-tier running back. And why is it like only Derrick Henry? Because Christian McCaffrey is doubtful. Alvin Kamara plays Washington and all the news around Kamara surrounding his lack of pass game usage. So people are going to be less likely to want to play him at a pay up. Dalvin Cook is questionable going into the week. And then you have um, really those are the only four running backs priced above 8K. So it's really like, I guess, devolves into this Derrick Henry or not decision checkpoint where um, it's really going to alter the overall uh, state of the slate. And also in the end around, I wrote about um, double mid-range running back being carrying a lot of leverage. And I really, I not that I want to rescind that, but I don't think that is going to generate as much leverage as we would like in a standard week because this week is not standard from a running back position perspective. We're likely, since we don't have those multitude of pay up running backs, it's literally like Derrick Henry, or it's likely going to be, you know, a double mid range running back week. So again, all these things come together. It's really hard to narrow down the chalk build for this week or what like those main decision checkpoints are just because we have so many like unknowns with respect to questionable players with respect to these, non-elite game totals uh and everything along those lines but when we start like really digging in and piecing together where the field or how the field is likely to be seeing things it's likely comes down to as of now a derrick henry and Devonte adams decision checkpoint uh as the main decision checkpoints in the decision tree so super interesting um what are your thoughts on all that I just want to come back around to a point that you made, which is you think people are going to game stack less frequently this week, um, which is interesting. And I hadn't thought about that. Um, and I makes it makes sense. I see where you're coming from here, which is basically saying there aren't uh, a lot of there, there aren't really clear target games. And, and the field is, is latching on to Dallas. New York is a clear target game. So there's going to be a lot of stacks of that based on what we can see in ownership. Um, but outside of that, I think I'm just kind of browsing through ownership while you were talking after you said that to see if I think you're right. And I think you are. And that's really interesting because my like when you have a slate with a bunch of uh, games that are decently attractive, but no like clear one or two or three like shootout games with like, you know, 50 plus totals uh, and a close spread. Um, I think there's actually like you basically have two strategies, right? You either can try to game stack and you're basically you're hoping that out of these games that are sort of this muddle of, of middle game environments, that one of them kind of rises to the top and significantly it exceeds expectations. So you're hoping that like Tennessee, Jacksonville or whatever game you choose goes for 60. Or you're hoping that you can pick out the right individual plays, either uncorrelated or maybe slightly correlated, like, you know, maybe just a quarterback with a receiver and no bring back, maybe like another, you know, double receiver, or receiver running back pairing from another game. Um, but you're trying to like do less correlation, just pick out all the right individual plays from the other games. And that seems way, way harder to me. Um, I'd rather personally bet on uh, picking a game or two games or, you know, depending on how many entries you're doing, you know, five games um, and betting that one of those games significantly exceeds expectations uh, because the field's not going to be doing that. Like there aren't going to be a lot of stacks that are like game stacked around this Tennessee Jacksonville game or or honestly around any game except for Dallas Giants. And so, like, I'd rather take the approach of betting on a game environment because I think those are easier to predict than betting on 
you know, individual players. Uh, plus, you can just get a bunch of things right in one spot. Like if you pick the game that goes for 60, uh, then you're able to stack it and no one else is. And then if no other games really rise above that, that sort of model of these like 45 ish totals, um, then you're just you're way above the field. Uh, and so that's kind of the that's the approach I'm going to take this slate. I think I want to I almost want to game stack even more heavily if it looks like the field is go- is not going to be game stacking. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm basically attacking things the same way and probably thinking or asking yourself, like, Hilo, how do you how do you make the assertion that the field is going to be game stacking less? Well, when there's tight pricing mixed with these, medi- I guess, medium range game totals people are going to be looking for certainty because we've had three to three and a half, maybe four weeks, uh, week four being the debatable one. We've had these four weeks in a row where, where we've been able to buy certainty, we, which means we've been able to roster elevated floor plays um, through game stacks for the first three weeks, through game stacks in week four, through individual players that were mispriced. We've been able to find this, this certainty on our rosters. And... I think now that we don't have, we have this like perfect, I guess, uh, these per, all these different environments coming together to create this perfect scenario where we don't have much certainty this week. We don't have the high game totals. We don't have a, a lot of mispriced players. And so what, are, what is the field going to be looking to do? Well, I think they're going to be looking for that certainty. And that's going to revert a lot of people back into this like semi cash game mentality where they're looking for onesie twosies certainty where they're like, Oh, this like, um, LaVisca Chanel. Oh, he's 4,800 and he's in a good game environment for Jacksonville passing volume. So I'm going to pull him as a one-off and, and then they're, they're going to end up with this roster where it's just full of like these one-offs where, where they have more perceived certainty. Right. And that, that, like we talked about last week, that just increases the number of things that have to go right for you. So um, from a macro perspective, like over emphasizing the game stacks, the team stacks, the attacking game environments, I think is a high plus EV way to look at this week. All yes. right. <laughs> Sorry, Any, I'm still uh, getting over a cold. <laughs> no, my dude, voice is oh, me too, man. Yeah, dude, me too. My kids, uh, my kids were... It was only like a 24, 48 hour, like headaches, small fever off thing. And they all had it this past week. So of course now I have it now. Yeah. Adorable little plague carriers. I know, dude, little Petri dishes. I love it. <laughs> um, yeah. So if either X or I cough on the, on what we're on, I apologize. I will try to mute if I need to cough. Uh, but yeah, that's yeah. kind of how I'm seeing the slate. Um, X uh, kind of seeing, seeing things in a, in a similar vein, it seems like. Um, but jumping back to like the, the two Derrick Henry to Devonte Adams, um, kind of decision points. And these are basically decision points for how we think the field is going to be attacking the slate, right? Cause we don't have a ton of pay up players. We don't have a lot of players that are priced up and we don't have, um, we have a tighter grouping of pricing. So what I mean by that is we don't have a lot of the extremes. We don't have a ton of, you know, players at the top range of pricing. We don't have a lot of those perceived value guys down at $4,000 to $3,000. So when you start getting this, this tight-knit pricing group, it again, from a human psychology standpoint, we're likely to see a much more spread out uh, ownership once the slate kicks off. And the two exceptions to that, I think, this week are Derrick Henry and Devontae Adams. So 
X, how are you handling that situation when we have like the two highest price players on the slate um, that are the the decision tree checkpoints uh, or the main ones for this week? And it's so tough with those two because they outproject everyone else by so much. Like, so Derek Henry is projected for almost 25 DraftKings points. Uh, the next highest running back is Alvin Kamara at 20.7. No one else is over 20. At wide receiver, I have Devonta Adams at 23.3. DJ Moore at 19.2. Uh, then no one else over 17.7. And so, like, you have these two guys who are, uh, they're not just the most expensive and the highest projected. Like, there's a pretty big gap between them and the next guys below them. And so the way that I would approach this is it depends on the rest of the roster. Like Derrick Henry and Devontae Adams are clearly fantastic plays. And, and this looks like a week with more modest total games where I would I would guess if we played this week out 100 times that winning tournament scores, even in big tournaments, would be closer to 200 than to 250. Um, and so, you know, just getting a lot of raw points is going to be valuable. Like if Devontae Adams or Derrick Henry go, go for 25, um, that wouldn't be a great that wouldn't be great based on their salary. If they go for 30, that's still only OK based on their salary. It's not awesome, um, but that still might well be enough this week. And so the way I think about it is it, it's it's based on the rest of the roster. So like if I'm building a roster that's stacked around, I just keep using Tennessee Jacksonville because I love that game. So if I'm building a roster with like Trevor Lawrence and Marvin Jones and Dan Arnold or something like that as my as my as my game stack, and then I bring it back with Derrick Henry, uh, then I kind of feel like I can do whatever else, whatever the hell I want with the rest of the roster. Um, and like I can happily play Devontae Adams in that. Um, but if I'm doing like, if I was doing a, a, a DAC stack, if I'm stacking the Cowboys, uh, the Cowboys game, I'd probably want to play at most one of those guys and maybe even neither of them. Um, just because I'm already embracing so much ownership at that core game stack that I would want to separate elsewhere. And so there I'd be looking to use like Aaron Jones. Um, AJ Brown is no longer the sneaky uh, the sneaky pivot, apparently, because he's projecting for pretty high ownership. Um, but if you want to get cute, like you could fully, we talked about this, I think this uh, Jam talked about this, is just fully stacking the Titans. Um, but Or you could play like, there's going to be more than just Derrick Henry and A.J. Brown on the field for the Titans, right? Like, uh, we could get the Westbrook Akeen, if that's how it's his name, you know, flop like week. He's probably, I assume, he's going to be running as a wide receiver too. Um, you could play Ferkser on a week where tight end is pretty fragile um, and just play like, that's why I mentioned Dan Arnold too, right? Like I'm I'm happy to use uh, tight ends in my game stacks. And on a week when tight end is incredibly fragile, uh, I would ha- I'll happily play guys like Dan Arnold and Anthony Ferkser at incredibly modest ownership uh, and just hope they beat out like, you know, Evan Ingram and Ricky Seals-Jones. Yeah, that was that was uh, I I was I made a couple of jokes in the end around about um, Evan Ingram and Ricky Seals Jones being the at tight end. And, horrible. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we'll talk about that when we get the tight end position. But yeah, I agree with um, basically everything you said there. One thing um, that also is kind of I guess along the same lines, but um, looking at it from a different sense and. We've talked about over the past two weeks, the idea of like, I, I dubbed it like phase three game theory, right? So like if the field is catching on to previous trends, like that, that we have attacked heavily last year um, and at the beginning of this year, like how, what, how, what can we do to like stay ahead of that trend? And I think one of the, one of the things that the field is going to be a little bit smarter on is the concentration of this Tennessee offense. So I think people are going to think they're being sneaky by playing a 
like quote unquote full Tennessee stack with Tannehill, Derrick Henry and AJ Brown. So my, one of my like macro phase three, again, quote unquote game theory thoughts of this week is, is Brian Tannehill necessary in that stack? So is there a possibility for Derrick Henry and AJ Brown to hit being the main cogs of this offense this week without bringing Tannehill? And my conclusion was yes. Like, like that is very much in play by making a Tennessee overstack, but dropping Tannehill and playing only Derrick Henry with AJ Brown. Cause there mm-hmm. is that, there is that scenario where like Tannehill passes for like 225 to 250 yards and half of that goes through AJ Brown. And then still the touchdowns are scoring either only through AJ Brown and Derrick Henry, in which case like Henry and AJ Brown can combine for 60 points and Tannehill could score 18, 20, 22 points and not be optimal overstack pairing. Yeah. So, so that's like, again, these... we... oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. I, need to I was gonna say I, I tend to fiddle with rosters as we're doing this, um, and like one of the rosters I'm poking around at now is exactly that. It's Derrick Henry and AJ Brown. Uh, you know, a lot of concentration on the Titans' offense, and then Trevor Lawrence, Marvin Jones, Dan Arnold, um, and then Aaron Jones as leverage off of Devontae Adams, uh, and then just a couple fill-in pieces around that. And like that kind of roster, I think, is a way to, you know, and, and you could also build that roster with. Um, with Devontae Adams, if you really wanted to, it's harder to fit with AJ Brown as well, but you can make it work if you want to. So like there's ways to build rosters uh, around these highly owned plays, but they're still going to be materially different from what the field is likely to do. And I think that's the kind of the key lesson here, right? Like you can be different without being dumb. (laughs) You can be different while still playing the good plays. That is what we are trying to get at exactly. And that's kind of that rabbit hole I was leading us down without coming out and saying it is we're trying to teach this process of like making, you know, still, I guess, putting yourself in position for the least amount of things to have to go right to win the most amount of money when they do go right. And that is done through attacking games in a different way than the field is doing without making suboptimal plays. So hopefully, um, and the, the lineup that you just read off, yeah, I built that. <laughs> like I've been playing around with that too. So it's funny to see those thoughts come kind of come together at the same time. But um, yeah, so the, again, the overall, this is all still in kind of the macro discussion of the slate and we've kind of drugged this on a little bit long, but I think it is warranted this weekend where we can almost assume that the field is going to, struggle with working through these thought processes and these, you know, working through the macro of the slate to, to pick out these particular instances that are the highest EV, you know, opportunities for us. And I also like you, I'm, I'm heavy on the Tennessee Jacksonville game. I also am heavy on the green Bay Packers and Cincinnati game as one that, Mm -hmm. uh, that, yeah, that could blow up, um, at low combinatorial ownership. So, those are kind of the things that we want to be thinking about. Again, this was probably more so an exercise of, you know, how we go about viewing a slate. And it's, it all starts with how we think the field is viewing the slate. And that's why we go through like the chalk build and, and how, how we can smartly differentiate from that. Um, anything to add from like a macro perspective of the slate X? Yeah, I just want to note that like I've talked about this before, but one of the exercises I do is I look for where ownership is congregating. Um, on individual players from a game or a team, um, but the quarterbacks are really low owned. As in, 
people are trying to pick one-offs from this game, but no one is stacking it. And the game that is the glaring example there this week is Green Bay Cincinnati. So uh, really quick, um, Devontae Adams, about 25% ownership. Uh, one second, let me find the Cincinnati guys. Sack. I was not prepared for this. I thought I was. Um, all this, all three Cincinnati wide receivers between 12 and 15% ownership. So that's quite a bit of ownership. Um, on the, just those plays. And then you got someone Aaron Jones, a smidge on Mixon or, or maybe Perrine if Mixon's out. Um, but Aaron Rodgers, 1%, Joe Burrow, where'd he go? 5%. So what this tells us is the field is trying, it's, it's going to play a lot of one-offs from this game, right? A lot, a large percentage of rosters are going to have at least one player from this game, but very few rosters are going to stack this game. And so like that, that's a, that's like a, alarm bell to me that says either and i talked about this a few weeks ago with the rams when it went horribly wrong and cup had the best game of his career um but like for me the the way i approach those situations is i think okay i'm either going to bet that game fails and and we don't get we don't get any amazing fantasy score out of it or i'm going to stack that game heavily and i'm going to load up on like burrow plus two pass catchers plus Devonte or aaron jones or even aaron Rodgers plus Devonte, and then you know, and then uh, Tanyan or something like that, right? Like again, again with fragile tight ends, I'll I'll play guys like Tanyan uh, more readily, and so like that that's an exercise I think is really valuable each week is just to go look through the projected ownership and see how it's piecing together on a team basis, and then with the quarterbacks as well, so you can see where are people stacking versus where are they playing solo. Like there's some ownership on the Bucks wide receivers, but Brady is also projecting as a fairly high end quarterback this week. So there's going to be a lot of Tampa Bay stacks, um, but like there's going to be no Green Bay stacks. There's going to be no Jacksonville stacks. So like those are the places that I like to attack. Yeah, and I'm going to hammer home something that you said there. Um, why is it so important that we're expecting between 12 and 15 percent ownership for all three of the primary wide receivers and primary pass catchers for Cincinnati? but we're not on Burrow. And that, like you said, that leads us directly to we're expecting a lot of one-offs from that game. So uh, like you identified that as a spot where um, I want to be attacking a little bit heavier this week. Um, and the, the big thing here is to, if you, for those listening, is if you find one of those spots, like don't be afraid to, to go all in on it. Not, not from a sense of like allocate all of your rosters to it. If you're like an, a mini MME or an MME player, but a, a sense of find out what angles in that game that the field is likely not going to be on and attack those heavily on individual rosters. Because again, all we need is that one roster uh, to shoot us up the leaderboard and, and hunt for that first place. Uh, so I love it. Um, kind of seeing the same things out of uh, those two games in particular. Some other games that I think the field will discount the chance of, you know, it developing into a game environment that is one of those had to haves. Um, clearly, San Francisco and Arizona, it could turn into a shootout. And that is more so dependent on what San Francisco is able to put up on the actual real life scoreboard. Um, and the other one that I think could, you know, lead us into a, a top game environment is Detroit and Minnesota from the way that those two mm-hmm. defenses have been have been performing up to this point. So um, again, if you find, if you highlight one of those situations from, again, they arrive from like critical thinking about the slate overall, um, pick onesie twosies at rosters and attack those different spots, uh, heavily that on the game environment. And that is something that the field is not expected to be doing this week. And if we can break that down just one, layer, one level further with some ownership, 
So San Francisco and Arizona. Um, Trey Lance is looking like one of the highest owned quarterbacks of the week, possibly the highest. Uh, Kyler Murray is looking like one of the top five most owned quarterbacks of the week. And, and that makes sense, right? They should be. Um, the only other player in those games projected for over 5% ownership is Debo Samuel. So no one's playing Ayuk. No one's playing any of the Arizona receivers. No one's playing um, any of the running backs from that game. Uh, so that's like, that's again, sort of a clue to me, like, okay, there's going to be a lot of ownership on the quarterbacks, but if, if either Kyler to a lesser extent, Trey Lance at his price, um, but definitely Kyler, if they have ceiling games, like they're going to drag someone along with them, but it's hard to pick out who. And so a lot of people just don't want to, they're just not going to try. They're just like, well, I'll play it naked. They'll be fine. They can run, they can run in four touchdowns or whatever. And good luck. Um, the Detroit, uh, Minnesota game is similar, right? We've got DeAndre Swift is projecting for a lot of ownership. Um, I don't know where the Cook Madison thing will 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 settle out because the ownership projections are just weird there because we don't know what's happening with Allen. Um, but the receivers are projecting very low owned as well. Tight ends are projecting low owned. Um, so it's another area where you can kind of embrace like where the field's going away um, from this game, other than a couple of one offs, and just say again, like you know, let's let's hope this game environment succeeds. Let's not just hope I can pick the right you know, Viking, let's just hope game smashes. And this game could be a 55 or 60 total game by the time it's all said and done. Um, and then, you know, you're way over the, you're way over on all the people who just tried to pick the one right player. Yeah. And particularly with the San Francisco, Arizona game where we might, or I guess we're likely for this, for the 49ers, but we might as well for the Cardinals, we might see a, a reduction in a, the amount of offensive personnel available for this game. Like obviously we have George Kittle, who's doubtful for the 49ers. Well, for the Cardinals, we also have uh, the, you know, the lead, the one, a running back who um, is questionable, legitimately questionable. I think this week uh, in chase Edmonds. So how does that affect, um, you know, the overall, volume dispersal in that game well obviously it's going to narrow it down some so again things to think about um although the quarterbacks are expected to carry lots of ownership although debo samuels expected to lots carry lots of ownership we don't expect a lot of game environment bets on this game and like how is how is debo samuel going to see double digit targets again well it's likely going to be in a trailing environment well how are they going to be trailing well somebody on arizona has have to score points um, so again, things to think through things to differentiate yourself smartly from the field. So love it. Love it. All right, man. Anything to add for the macro perspective? I don't believe so. I think we covered it pretty well. All right, let's jump right into quarterbacks. Uh, we talked about kind of where the field is likeliest to go and that is pretty much all over the place, right? We, we have a very unique slate in the sense that we're missing a lot of big names at the quarterback position. So we're missing the homes. We're missing, um, you know, uh, Jesus, Josh Allen, we're missing Josh Allen. The yeah. Other that guy. Lamar. Yeah. We're missing Lamar Jackson. So we're missing like three out of the top five real life quarterbacks in the NFL. Um, we're left with Kyler Murray, Tom Brady up top. Um, we have Aaron Rodgers, who seems overpriced for the expected volume. And then Jalen Hurts. And those are the only four quarterbacks who are priced above even 7,000. So when you think about how that affects the chalk build, where we think people are going to try and go, well, we, we can't really narrow that down really for this week. So um, the big picture here is we want to get back to the basics and we want to hammer home playing uh this game of DFS as smartly as we can. And that goes into correlation that goes into attacking game environments and 
reducing the number of things that has to go right. And that ties into what we've talked about previously in this episode. So although Kyler Murray is expecting to have ownership, although um, on the other side of that game, we're expecting um, Trey Lance to carry ownership, we might expect to see some ownership on Justin Fields all the way down to 5.2. So the And then we expect some ownership on Jalen Hurts. And those are really like the only really rushing viable, you know, upside rushing viable quarterbacks that remain on the slate. And so we can expect those guys to carry ownership, but because of that rushing upside and because people are seeking certainty, it's more likely than not on this week, which sounds crazy to think about, but it's more likely than not that these quarterbacks are played naked at an increased rate than compared to like a standard week, how we would think about it. So um, again, attack those game environments and um, really in, in the Oracle and the end around, I kind of broke down quarterback from a, I guess a, a two outcome decision tree. So the outcome of the quarterback position outcome a is one of these high upside rushing quarterbacks completely leaves every other quarterback in the dust because you know they rush for 50 yards they rush for one or two touchdowns and they completely destroy the slate the other outcome is one of these pocket passers or these moderate rushing upside quarterbacks you know sam darnold um depending on how you view his production up to this point even taylor heineke um even down to uh Lawrence and you know these guys who they they bring at least some ability with their legs but they're not thought of as rushing quarterbacks so one of these other pocket passers or demi rushing quarterbacks can keep pace with the higher priced rushing quarterbacks and you could gain a lot of value in EV in that way so those that's really how I'm viewing the quarterback position what are your thoughts on the position overall i just want to note daniel jones is offended that you left him off the list entirely there um yeah he's that's, actually projecting uh, that's as one a of the, matter of i don't blame you <laughs> that's just a matter of being sick <laughs> i just that 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 touchdown run last year where he was it's in the open field had passed everyone and then tripped over his own feet and just fell down like I lost a showdown because of that, and it was so tilting, and I never want to roster Daniel Jones again. But this is DFS, and we have to have short memories. Um, but I think you're right. Like I, This is a week where I feel like you don't let QB decide your roster, right? And most weeks are like, honestly, like it's rare for me to get fixated on a quarterback. I think you want to get fixated on a game um, and then play the quarterbacks from that game. I do want to note that Jalen Hurts is, I think he's the QB three or four right right now currently. Just an overall season-long scoring. I think that's right. And he's projected for like 6% ownership. And that game feels a little on the low side, a little on the low total side to me. I think that that's, um, that's a game I'm actually pretty interested in the Philly side of. Um, I know we kind of passed over the games part. I, just didn't, I didn't think about that to mention at the time because I hadn't really... Uh, peered into Hertz's ownership, but like Hertz is one of those QBs where like he does have that 35 plus point ceiling. He could just blow up the slate and be the highest scoring guy and leave everyone else 10 points in the dust. Um, and when I can get that at, at, you know, well under 10% ownership, that's that's one I'm always going to want to play. But other than that, I mean, you mentioned Mike, I, I'm honestly my favorite tournament quarterback of the week is Trevor Lawrence, which feels gross. Um, but, uh, and then Brian Tannehill. But um, other than that, I think it's, it's let the, let the, let the game dictate 
your roster. Don't don't pick quarterback. I think a lot of people start their roster at quarterback because quarterback is the it's the most important position in the NFL. It's the one that everyone knows all the quarterbacks, right? Everyone knows all their names, who they are. And it's the top of the roster. It's the first spot, right? So I think people start at the at the quarterback position when they're building rosters a lot of the time. And I think that that is like, I, I think generally you don't want to let quarterback dictate your roster. You want to let the rest of the roster dictate your quarterback, whether that's based on game um, or even just based on like, I want to build a roster around this core separate from my game stack and then find a game stack that fits that core. Yeah, man. Uh, absolutely crushed that. Two salient points that really stuck out to me from what you just said. One is pairing, thinking of the quarterback position this week from a from a game environment perspective. That kind of highlights my two favorite quarterbacks on the week, which are also Lawrence um, and then Joe Burrow. Uh, mm-hmm. So again, out of my out of my two favorite games to attack, those are quarterbacks playing in that game. Um, and then the other thing that really sticks out to me this week from a like how many quarterbacks are available that can absolutely crush the slate. Well, really, it's like. And Jalen Hurts, yes, he's the quarterback three. Uh, I am all over that in best ball, so I've been tracking him, giving a a weekly update on Twitter about his quarterback finish because um, I have an inordinate amount of Jalen Hurts in best ball. Um, but the the two, there's really two quarterbacks, right, who should be thought of as the guys who could absolutely just destroy and leave everyone else behind, and that's Kyler Murray and Jalen Hurts. And again, that has to do with rushing prowess. That has to do with the game environments that they're in. Um, but we, when we look at, I want to look real quick at Kyler Murray in, in particular. And he has been held between 32 and 36 pass attempts in every game. And we've basically seen every game environment for the Cardinals, except for the Cardinals getting smashed. So we've seen a shootout with Minnesota. We've seen two absolutely, well, I guess three. Um, uh, we'll, we'll call it two and a half blowouts because Jacksonville actually mm-hmm. was, was leading at the, uh, at the end of the first quarter, I think in that game. But, um, and so we've seen different game environments out of the Cardinals, but we still have seen Kyler Murray being held between 32 and 36 pass attempts. Well, let's look at his rushing attempts and he's been held between five and seven rush attempts, uh, in every game this year. So what does that tell me? That tells me that because of the personnel that they've added this off season, they are less reliant on designing uh, run plays for Kyler Murray. And a lot of that is coming through the scramble game. Well, what, what players did they add really on offense? Well, AJ Brown and then James Connor. Well, let's look at James Connor real quick and see if he can like give us an idea of why this is happening. You look at James Connor, he scored four touchdowns in the last two weeks with two touchdowns a game over that span. How did that affect Kyler Murray? Obviously, one of the big draws from Kyler Murray is his red zone rushing prowess. He has he had three touchdowns on the ground, uh, one in each week through week three. So are Cliff Kingsbury and the Cardinals like less inclined to be calling these Kyler Murray design plays because James Conner is now in town and is more of a even though his size is more on the diminutive side he's more aligned with a power running back game or a straight ahead runner than they've had over the past year and a half so the answer to that is i don't know but it's an interesting study into trying to find the why behind the how here 
you have any thoughts on that situation with Kyler Murray and his rushing? It's sort of interesting. And like, if you look at a lot of um, young quarterbacks who come into the league and run a lot, it's not uncommon to see them run less as seasons go by. <clears throat> and I don't know, like, I don't know the reasoning necessarily. My hypothesis is these really elite rushing quarterbacks uh, they're when they're new to the league, the game's really fast. They're, they're, they're relying on their instincts, right? Tuck and run. And as they get more comfortable as passers, uh, their, their coaches don't want them carrying the ball 12 or 15 times a game. Uh, Lamar Jackson seemingly being an exception here, but like, you know, Dak Prescott was a rushing quarterback when he first came into the league this year, he has, uh, let's see, what is it? It looks like pretty go 17 rush attempts in four games. Um, you know, like the, you see these rushing quarterbacks, their rushing upside diminishes. Uh, it's common for it to diminish as their careers go on. And I think that might be like, you want to protect your investment, right? Like rushing, having your quarterback rushing, like playing like a running back, not like running and sliding, but just running into defenders and trying to pull past them. Like that's, you know, that's, that's an injury risk, right? You got to protect your franchise quarterback. And so like we actually see right now through four games, James Conner has 14 red zone um, opportunities and Chase Edmonds has 10. Um, I don't know the breakdown between targets and carries there for Edmonds. Um, and yeah, I think last year, I'd have to go look at last year to find it. But like last year, Kenyon Drake had a lot fewer. He had very few red zone opportunities, right? They used him a lot between the 20s, um, but I'd have, they, they, didn't, they didn't use him very much in the red zone. I think Kenyon Drake had only a couple of rushing touchdowns all year. Because Kyler was the guy in the red zone. And the coaches have talked a lot about how Kyler has progressed as a passer. And so if he can run the offense effectively passing without exposing him to that much risk of all these designed run plays, it makes sense they would try to do that to me. Um, I'm sure they'll still use in the red zone. He'll still get his, he'll still get some runs. He'll still get his touchdowns. But like to your point, he's seen between five and seven carries a game. Last year it was more he was often carrying the ball eight, nine, ten times a game sometimes more. And so we were just, we were seeing more rushing equity from him. Um, I think he's still a fantastic quarterback and, you know, he's the top scoring quarterback of the league. And I think that a lot of that is because he has clearly improved as a passer. And so his, you know, his passing stats are padding the lack of running stats. Um, but I think we need to think about him perhaps a little bit differently than we have. Whereas previously we've thought about him as one of those, those sort of rush first quarterbacks where he has this amazing rushing and then everything he gets in the air is kind of on top of that. And now it seems like, at least so far this season, uh, the majority of his fantasy production has come in the air. And the rushing uh, the rushing has been sort of the icing on the cake. And previously, it was a little more the other way around for him. Um, Hertz is still in that mode where Hertz is sort of the, you know, the, the rushing is the primary reason you want to roster Hertz. And then the passing is the icing on the cake. Um, but with Kyler, it, it seems like it's shifted and I don't know, it's only been four games. So I don't know if that's um, a short term, just a short term trend, just variance, just based on those games, right? Like in three of those games, they were um, winning comfortably, right? Two blowouts. And then Jacksonville was leading early on, but the, you know, they weren't leading most of the game, right? So those ended up being three comfortable wins. And so maybe they just, you know, tried to withhold him a little bit in the more comfortable wins and sort of like, you know, why risk him? Uh, so I don't know. I don't, I can't, I can't see inside the coach's head. Those are just sort of my hypotheses, but it does seem at least so far that he's been used a little bit less as a runner. And so I think that's the kind of thing that you have to decide for yourself. You know, does this seem like a trend and I want to be ahead of this trend? Um, and thinking of him this way. And, and if you think of him that way, what it means is largely, it doesn't mean don't play Kyler. It means probably don't play him naked. 
because if he's, if he's getting more of his points through passing, then it becomes even more likely that when he has a ceiling game, he's bringing a receiver along with him. Um, or do you think you want to approach it from a, you know, this is only four games. It's just variance. I believe more of the rushing is going to come back um, and play him as you always have. And I think either way, is vi- either way is viable. But this is one of those positions where I think you want to take a stand and decide, you know, is this is this something that's trend? Is this something that's changing? And is it going to stick? And if so, do I want to be early on that? Do I want to, you know, do I want to take the risk of being wrong in order to be early? Dude, you're absolutely in my mind right now. That um, was really what I was trying to get at is establishing a trend before the field does. And I think Kyler Murray is one of those trends. We look at, uh, and, and what does that make me want to do? That makes me less likely to play Kyler Murray naked, which we attacked pretty relentlessly last year. And now the field is kind of onto that. And they're onto that when the trend is changing. We look at Kyler's rushing again, held between five and seven carries. His high in rushing yards in a game this season is 39. He has rushing yards of 39, 19, 31, and 20. Let's look at Daniel Jones, who you brought up earlier. Sorry, I had to cough. Uh, and his rushing output, he has 27 yards, 39 yards, 95 yards, and 27 yards. So his low on the season is 27 yards, and Kyler's high on the season is 39 yards. So interesting dynamic to the quarterback position where I think we can start gaining uh, an edge on the field where the field is likely still viewing things through a what has happened in the past lens. Uh, that's all I got. That's all I want to talk about at the quarterback position. Uh, anything to add X before we move on? I hate to say it because I hate him, but Daniel Jones has actually looked pretty good this year. Yeah, I but agree. Like, I mean, he did okay. He did reasonably well against Denver. A really tough defense. He did what he had a really nice game against Washington on the road. A, a tough defense, although they haven't been super tough this year. A letdown against Atlanta in a game where like where his two primary receivers both got injured mid game. Uh, and then kind of like just took apart the saints, which is also a good defense. So like, I don't know, maybe the, maybe the Daniel Jones chalk week is right. I hate to say it. <laughs> yeah, but. I mean, we have Kyler with a 38.1 fantasy output game. We have Kyler with a 34.56 fantasy output. Daniel Jones has two games of, um, what is it? Over 29.46. He's got a 29.46 and a 30.78. And that's all the while only rushing for two scores and only passing for four total touchdowns. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't think Daniel Jones is uh, as much of a wash as the field kind of assumes here. So, yeah, I agree there. All right, man, let's uh, let's move over to the running back position. We kind of alluded to a little bit or I guess the macro view of the running back position, likely the first decision checkpoint being to Derrick Henry or to not Derrick Henry. How are you seeing uh, the running back position from a macro lens this week? I think to your point, it's, it's Derrick Henry and it's um, and it's a mid-tier back. And and actually, I don't even know if mid-tier, right? Like I would say below 6K is kind of in the cheap tier of DraftKings these days. Um, so that's like, well, I think the ownership looks like it's more of Henry and a cheap back. So like Leonard Fournette, Damian Williams. Um, I think people are this week embracing um well embracing uh they're expressing a little more confidence than i personally have in some of these cheaper backs so like let's look through the the high owned cheap backs we've got leonard Fournette at 5200 home favorite against miami good matchup um but we know that the we know that the 
what the hell is the team name? The Bucks. Thank you. Um, the Bucks. Uh, they tend to score through the air. And more importantly, we know that Giovanni Bernard's coming back, or it looks like he is. He practiced in full on Friday. He's got a questionable tag, but I expect he's going to be active. Um, and so, like, why 26% ownership on Leonard Fournette with, with Giovanni Bernard active, which dings him significantly in the past game, on a team that likely scores through the air, on a team that still has Ronald Jones lurking. And, I mean, yes, Ronald Jones has not done much this year. Um, but, like, if you look back through last year, we kept seeing this, like, oh, we've got the Bucks running back situation figured out. It's, it's this guy now. And then they surprise us by giving the other one, you know, a big game. Um, so there's that. I think Leonard Fournette's volume is likely going to be uh, somewhat controlled by the Bucks uh, because they want he, like he's the, he's their guy, uh, rightly or wrongly. So they want to make sure they keep him healthy for the playoffs. So if they end up blowing Tampa or blowing Miami out here, I don't see them giving Fournette 20 plus touches. They'll let Rojo close it out. Um, then you've got Damian Williams, who's a, who's a good running back. He was good on Kansas City, um, but he sat out last season, and we haven't really seen him a lot this year. And people are assuming that he's going to be the lead back now, but I don't think we know that. Or what's his name? Like Khalil Herbert, I think, is the other running back there. Um, they could they could well keep Damian Williams in the pass game role and let Herbert be the two down grinder. And we just we don't know that. And so if uh, and the other one is James Robinson, where he's seen a lot of workload the last couple of weeks. Um, but Carlos Hyde's coming back. And when Hyde was active earlier in the season, Robinson's workload was was way lower than I think people thought it. Well, probably than it should be. He's way better than Carlos Hyde. Um, but it's, you know, his workload was much lower. His workload shot up when Hyde was inactive. Now Hyde's back. Is there, you know, is there anything to tell us that, you know, Ur- noted coaching maven and strip club fan Urban Meyer is not going to just go back to that previous workload split where, you know, or Robinson is getting, you know, but he got, what's he, 11 and 14 running back opportunities the first two weeks before getting 21 and 20 in weeks three and four. Um, you know, how do we know it's not going back? And so, those are the kind of situations where I feel like there's a lot of there's a lot of volatility for all three of those guys. And my general rule of thumb with highly volatile situations is play them at low ownership, don't play them at high ownership. And so I think the field is latching on to those three guys with a high degree of confidence. And any of those guys could smash. Um, but I think that they're the confidence that the ownership is expressing is is more than is warranted for those situations. So I'm inclined to be underweight on all of those guys. Um, <clears throat> and I'm inclined to try to bet heavily on a couple guys that give me some leverage opportunities. Uh, so Aaron Jones being a really good one, where Devontae Adams is projecting for Forex, the ownership of Aaron Jones. Um, Damian Harris, who we know that in a game script in which uh, the Patriots win is likely to comfortably push over 20, over 20 touches. Um, Josh Jacobs, who came back last week from injury and immediately saw five targets while Kenyon Drake vanished. Um, now he's a home favorite against the Bears, who are missing um, – what's that guy's name? Oh, their run stopper, Hicks. They, they're missing Hicks. Um, and the run defense has been incredibly vulnerable without Hicks. Uh, and Elijah Mitchell, who is great leverage off of Hiley and Trey Lance. And we saw that Elijah Mitchell was clearly the guy that uh, Kyle Shanahan trusted with a lot of volume when um, – when Raheem Mostert went down, it wasn't Trey Sermon. It was it was Mitchell. And so like I feel like those are areas where we can embrace a little more certainty at much lower ownership as opposed to these uh what I consider actually pretty volatile situations with the first three guys, Fournette, Williams, and um Robinson, who are coming in a lot higher owned. Um, who if you know, if that scenario that the field is hypothesizing plays out, right? If Fournette is the lead back, if Damian Williams is the lead back, if Hyde doesn't eat into Robinson's workload again, they're great plays. Um, but I just think the ownership is representing 
more certainty than is warranted. Yeah, dude. All right. So you just basically highlighted like half of the end around this week. Um, and it was since we know that we're likely to see uh, one pay up running back and one, we'll call them now, you know, value running back down below 6K or cheap running back. Um, they all have question marks, right? Those, those cheaper guys. James Robinson, we have Carlos Hyde coming back who is a much better play in a vacuum with Carlos Hyde off the field that comes from a, a just being on the field more perspective and having a more, a bigger opportunity for touches. We have, um, Damian Harris, even who I, I was initially kind of thinking of in the same vein as you as being a high leverage play. Well, new England has four of their five starting offensive linemen out for this contest. So that is a, at least uh, dent to the expected efficiency for Damian Harris. So again, more question marks there. Um, Leonard Fournette is almost like one and a half times a better play in like from the sense of on paper play uh, with Gio Bernard out. Um, his my projection on him for this week goes from five to seven targets with Giovanni Bernard out to two to four targets with Giovanni Bernard in. And what is the value of a target? Well, like three targets is the value of a rushing touchdown. It's about six points. So that's, that's highly, that's a big difference, right? From, uh, the certainty of Leonard Fournette and the field has a high level of certainty on him this week. So, uh, again, high level of question marks there. And then we also have the nebulous region of Alexander Madison in that range, right? We don't know is Dalvin Cook going to play. If Dalvin Cook misses, like it is flat out without a doubt that Alexander Madison is the top play on paper at the running back position. And that makes things a little bit more simple for us. But mm-hmm. we're also, we also have about, you know, anywhere from a 40 to 60% chance. We don't know right now of Dalvin cook playing. And then these two backs, um, if Dalvin plays, he's likely to remain managed and remain ineffective. So we basically have a wash and we can't play either Dalvin cook and Alexander Madison. The two oh. guys that go ahead. Uh, no, you finish. The last guy I failed to cover is uh, Damian Williams. And if we look at the snap breakdown after David Montgomery left that game last week, Damian Williams saw 19 offensive snaps and Khalil Herbert saw seven. So what are we getting? We're getting like a 66-33 split. Um, and is that enough for Damian Williams? Like, do, Can we count on him with Matt Nagy as the head coach to be like the guy? I don't know. And so there, there are, there's a good deal of uncertainty surrounding that play as well. Um, you go ahead and then I'll wrap it up with the two guys that I like from this range a lot. I was going to, there's one more guy that I forgot about, which is um, Chase Edmonds is questionable uh, and appears to be a game time decision. And it's a late game, so we keep going, we keep coming back to this late swap theory uh, that James Conner becomes the RB one uh, with a probably pretty significant workload if um, if Edmonds is out, and I think that also boosts Kyler because it's just it's just one fewer person to contend with in the the in the the rushing world for Kyler. Um, but I think that Conner is going to be an interesting, an interesting leverage play, or an interesting, not so much leverage, but low owned play, because no one's going to roster him going into the into the slate unless we get news overnight. Um, no one's going to have him, and so like that, those, those afternoon uh, swaps where you know a lot of the fields already played their running back positions. Um, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't leave a bunch of running back positions sitting there open just so you can try to swap to James Conner, but 
be aware of that because I think he becomes a much stronger play if if Edmonds misses and having some amount of flexibility to consider swapping uh, is advantageous. Boomtown, brother. Those were uh, basically the two guys I wanted to cover. My favorite guys from this range from a game theory leverage solid play on paper mix. Um, James Conner. And I, I would contend that he does carry a pretty significant amount of leverage and that's direct leverage off of Kyler Murray because where is Connor generating a good chunk of his EV is through rushing scores. And if we can project him confidently for, you know, 20, 22 touches with heavy red zone role, and that would be why we would be playing him if Chase Edmonds misses, well, then that directly eats from Kyler Murray's expected rushing upside. And how is Kyler going to be played? He's likely going to be played naked this week. So uh, I think that actually does carry a significant amount of leverage. I love that play. And the other one is Elijah Mitchell at 5,200. coming back against an Arizona defense who have given up the most second level rushing yards per touch in the league. So what does that mean? It means their linebackers are one slow in pursuit and two um, poor at covering those uh, second level gaps. Um, And that is a plus for a San Francisco run game who looks to generate those gaps in the run game. So um, I love those two plays in this range. I think those, both of them carry a high amount of leverage because none of these guys down here carry a high level of certainty. And it's just a, a way to leverage that uncertainty playing um, other upside guys in this, in this range. So love it. The last thing that I want to cover at the running back position is nobody, absolutely nobody is going to be playing two running backs priced at seven K or more. So why is that a mistake? Well, it's likely going to be that teams, if they're going to play Ezekiel Elliott as a large home favorite in the highest game total game on the slate, are likely not going to pair him with Derrick Henry. So what do I immediately want to do? I'm like, how can I build a roster with Derrick Henry and Zeke on the same roster? Because that both of them carry a pretty significant floor. So there's that certainty that we're looking for. And both of them are in games that I want to attack this week. So um, just an interesting thing to think about. You can also throw Saquon Barkley into that same vein, but uh, he would have to, I think, generate significant more of his value through the pass game. Whereas Zeke um, obviously is doing primary, most of his damage on the ground. Um, But how, again, can we fold like attacking a game environment. I put this in the, um, I forget where I put it. I think it was in the Oracle, but the, the ways or the, the correlated bringbacks for Saquon Barkley and Zeke in particular. So how, because of how Dallas is managing their offense over the last three weeks, what is the ideal bringback for Zeke? Well, it's either Kadarius Tony or God forbid we play Evan Ingram, but it's never Evan Ingram. Yeah, but if you do if you do play Evan Ingram, like play him on a Zeke roster because that would be yeah. the optimal way to play him. Uh, and people are not going to do that. And who is the ideal or the optimal bring back for Saquon Barkley? Well, it's likely a um, Dallas pass catcher. So thinking about different ways that that game could play out. And although these are high, this is the highest game total on the game. And although Saquon and Zeke are expected to garner at least some moderate ownership i don't think that either are going to be played optimally this week so easy leverage there all right man that's all yeah. about the running back position what do you got i was gonna say i would agree with you i also think you're right that like it's 
the rosters that have Zeke and Saquon are not going to have Henry, or very few of them. Yeah, yeah. So I will be overweight that pairing this week. All right, man, let's... We'll, wide receiver should be a little bit quicker because it's basically Devontae Adams and spread from there. Um, <laughs> again, big things are to keep uh, game environments in mind, keep those correlated pairings like... Trevor Lawrence, Marvin Jones, and LaVisca Chanel is kind of like a back to the well for me um, game stack or team stack, I guess, against the Tennessee Titans. You know, I was on the the Jets last week, so I'm going back to the well this week. Um, I called Trevor Lawrence like my breakout player of the week this week. Uh, and that's another situation where like a combined 16K in salary could easily lead to a four to five X salary multiplier on these three just for how. Um, Concentrated that offense is expected to be this week. What did the Jets get to last week? The Jets three stack was like 65. It was a 4.25 salary multiplier. Okay. So, and, that, yeah, so and right that, I just want to, I just want to revisit that conversation briefly because, you know, there's a lot of conversation in discord about like, Oh, the Jets, how do you play the Jets? Um, and again, it's, it's not that the Jets, it's not that Zach Wilson was going to be the highest scoring quarterback in the week. Um, or that, you know, Jameson Crowder and Corey Davis can be the two highest scoring wide receivers in the week. It's about combining a high degree of certainty of where the volume is going to get a really strong multiplier to be the base of your roster. And that allows you to afford a lot of really expensive studs elsewhere. Um, and then I think Lawrence, that Lawrence combo is, is somewhat is similar here where Lawrence is not going to be the, the top QB scorer of the week. I mean, almost certainly not, but you've got a lot of, you've got cheap concentration in a positive matchup. Yeah. And what is, what is like a 90% outcome for Trevor Lawrence? Well, it's probably 303, right? It's probably, you know, that's probably close to his absolute ceiling this week. Well, what does that translate to in, in points? That's 27 points. If you get 27 points and most of those passing yards, if he hits 300 are flowing through LaVisca Chanel and Marvin Jones, they're likely approaching 25 or 27 points as well. And if you get, if you get 27 points from all three, that's a five X multiplier on their salary. So, um, again, that would be one thing having to go right and covering three positions. One thing being Trevor Lawrence passing for over 300 yards and three touchdowns, because if that happens, then, you know, our standard, if then statements, if Trevor Lawrence passes for 303, then it is highly likely that a bulk of that production is going through Marvin Jones and LaVisca Chanel. Yep. All right. Devontae Adams, top play on the slate uh, by far at the wide receiver position. Um, there will be, I think there will be a good deal of Derrick Henry and Devontae Adams uh in the same roster. And I think people are going to think that they're being sneaky and then that's leverage. And I would contend otherwise. Um, so think about how you can play those situations differently than the field will be this week, uh, is the last thing I'll say with Devonte Adams. What else you got from the wide receiver position before I round it out with some <laughs> sneaky upside plays? I mean, Devonte is awesome. Like, how do you not, you know, He's a great play. There's nothing else to say about Devontae Adams. Um, I think the Dallas game, I mean, again, like the Dallas wide receivers are projecting at some of the highest ownership. I think that game as a whole is, it's a good game environment, but I think it's going over-owned relative to its likelihood of producing tournament tournament winning scores. Um, I'm just kind of browsing through ownership and seeing where the field looks, I think, a little more certain than I think it should. Um, we already talked about the high ownership on the Bengals receivers, but not a lot of ownership on game stacks. 
Um, LaVisca Chenault was projecting for like double the ownership of Marvin Jones, even though Marvin Jones is really the wide receiver one in that offense, which feels weird to me um, in a reaction to his one big game. What else do I want to note? Similar at Tampa Bay, we also see like Chris Godwin and Antonio Brown projecting for much higher ownership than Mike Evans. Um, so these are just the kind of things I glance through and look at, and I'm like, okay, why is Godwin three or four x the owner the ownership of Mike Evans, right? Like, are they really that different in terms of in terms of playability, in terms of their likelihood of a ceiling game? Um, and this is kind of where I look for like how I'm going to build my exposures. Uh, I think I want to note that the Vikings receivers are projecting for pretty low ownership. Deontay Johnson's projecting for pretty low ownership for a guy who gets 10 plus targets in every healthy game. Um, Terry McLaurin looks projecting for low ownership. He's gotten pretty expensive, but like, especially on slates like this, um, we've had a lot. I wrote about this in my reflection article. We've had a lot of slate breaking scores. Uh, so far this season, we've also last week saw a shocking number of two two plus touchdown games, which are usually pretty rare. Um, but like this week with more mediocre games on the slate, uh, lower total games or, or or games that have one high total, but a, a very large spread. Um, I think you want like. You want to look for the guys who can post the slate breakers because. If and, and we may not get a single guy who breaks the slate, right? Like that's actually that's the case most weeks. Um, but I want to make sure I have exposure to the guys who have that upside to break the slate, the guys who can post 30 plus, which might be enough on this week. Um, and so McLaurin has to be in that pool. Like that guy is one of he probably has a top five to ten ceiling of any wide receiver on the slate this week. Um, he's gonna get he's almost certain to get over 10 targets. I think he's kind of going really overlooked. Oh, who else? I think that's really it. I mean, like other than that, it's game stacks for me as always. Um, oh, I'll mention Brandon Ayuk, I think, is 4,500. And with Kittle out, like Ayuk's usage has been all over the place. Um, but we know he's a really talented wide receiver. It's only been four weeks. And I mean, this guy was this guy was being drafted in the fourth and fifth round. And now it's like no one wants to touch him um, because of just a relatively small sample size of, of information. Uh, at, and, you know, he's the best receiver on the team, probably. I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe, you know, Debo and him are kind of neck and neck, but everyone wants to play Debo at 7,100. No one wants to play Ayuk at 4,500. And are they really that different in terms of their ceiling? I would argue no. We've seen plenty of ceiling from Ayuk. He hasn't shown it this season, but that's why no one wants to play him. Yeah, the one of the important things um, that we need to understand this week is that what are the potential slate breakers, right? And we, we have two of them that are going to be uber chalk in in derrick henry and Devonte adams well there's also like seven or eight wide receivers priced above 7k uh we'll say even 6.8 with mike evans that can be this like difference maker but we only have two in that whole range in that whole tier of wide receiver who expected to garner any real ownership and that's Devonte adams and debo samuel you highlighted terry mclaurin one of my favorite wide receiver plays on the slate I wrote him up in the end around. Um, it's highly likely that we see McLaurin see between 12 and 15 targets. And that is a huge, like maybe bold statement from me, but that, that like, it is highly likely that he is the only guy remaining on that offense um, in what is likely to be either a very tightly contested game or new Orleans pulls ahead early. Um, those are really the highest likelihood chance of outcomes for that game. So Terry McLaurin, even though, you know, we talk about, um, lockdown coverage from, oh God, what's his name? Help me out from New Orleans. Lattimore? Yeah, Marshawn Lattimore. Um, but Lattimore has been on the downturn for probably the last 
almost year. Yeah, uh, they have Roby now anyway. too. Yeah, so people are going to overweight the tough, the perceived tough matchup for Terry McLaurin this week, I think, and he's going to come in with pretty significantly low ownership. We also have Justin Jefferson up there at seven point seven. We we know that Detroit has allowed the high or the deepest. Um, yards per reception in the league by like a full two yards which is unheard of uh they are giving up big plays and they are giving them up frequently so who does that directly benefit from minnesota that's likely justin jefferson we have um deandre hopkins who obviously is in a good game environment but um has not garnered ownership at all this year dj Moore, highly highly intriguing for me um with cmc out he's likely going to see a little spike to his expected ownership but we know kind of how I wrote up this game. We know Carolina has remained aggressive almost regardless of game flow deep into games. So that is a plus to expected passing volume. Um, so I like DJ Moore, good bit. Mike Williams is likely going to be the guy in this tier who is going to see mm-hmm. the lowest amount of ownership. And we, if we would have said that before his clunker on four targets last game, people would have laughed at us because he had scored 22.1 points or more in every game. Um, averaging over 10 targets a game in that span. So uh, another one to think about. Um, and against a, a highly zone-based defense in Cleveland, Mike Williams as the ex-wide receiver sets up pretty well um, to find those gaps and sit in those holes. Uh, so all these guys carry what could be perceived as or what could be considered as slate-breaking upside, but there's only two in this window that are expected to garner ownership. So keep that in mind when building and i would advise to embrace a little additional variance at wide receiver position this week that does it for me for wide receiver brother you got anything else to add i don't think anything else i will note dj Moore is actually projected for quite high ownership now that cmc has been moved to doubtful um robbie anderson saw 11 targets last week like they there's a, there's a bit of squeaky wheel narrative they clearly want him still involved in the offense um I don't know and where else. were those targets? Where were those targets on the field? They were intermediate to deep. So that's high upside for sure. He didn't catch any of those ones though. <laughs> he did not. I think he saw like he saw like four targets of 18 yards or more, something like that. And I mean that's that's high upside. That's like um that's like Devontae Smith's standard week in total workload from four of his ten targets. So um, just interesting. I like that you brought him up. Interesting in that kind of mid-range, nebulous range. Uh, I will note this one. There's one guy. I feel like I feel like the the field is pretty sharp these days at identifying good plays. Like the chalk is usually good plays overall, right? Like you can argue if it's too highly owned relative to likelihood of success, but it's rare to see a play that I would just be like, I don't get that um, as a highly owned play. And there's one this week, which is Jacoby Myers. And that's the one I just don't understand. He's at 5,600 now. Um, like, I get it, the matchup against Houston. But, like, Jacoby Myers in games, the pay, like, they don't want to pass the ball. Like, he's gotten 14 targets and 12 targets the last weeks, but that's been in games where the uh, Patriots have thrown a ton. Um, in games where, you know, the, they, don't, they don't want Mac Jones to throw 40 passes most weeks, right? So I just I don't see how Jacoby Myers gets the kind of volume that he's going to need. And he's more of a slot receiver than a like slot plus. So he needs a lot of volume. It's like he's one of those chalk plays that like I kind of don't get this week. And I'm just wondering if if you have any different thoughts. Nope, I've completely eliminated him from my player pool, if that answers the question. 
yeah. you look at you look at week two against the Jets where they won 25-6. You look at a narrow loss against Miami in week one. He saw six and nine targets in those games respectively. And it wasn't until week three, a blowout loss to New Orleans. And week four, a narrow loss to Tampa Bay, which was more of like a, a back and forth, like who's going to get the better field position this drive game where, you know, obviously there was all that, you know, Tom Brady returns to Foxborough news, but he saw 14 to 12 targets in those games, but those were different game environments than we're expecting. We're not expecting Houston to put up much points on the scoreboard at all here. So, um, yeah. And yeah. what is like, I like, take the under on 30 pass attempts for Mac Jones. Yeah. And then what is Jacoby Myers? ADOT? It's like 4.7 or something crazy like that. I mean, I don't have it in front of me, but I think it's some, it's like <laughs> not even five. So it's, it's tiny. Um, one of the lower ADOTs in the league. He's like, he's like Jalen Waddle range in a dot yeah. so it's it's he needs volume and he's unlikely to see it this week i agree there uh good point anything else to add at wide receiver nope all right tight ends should be fairly quick as well we have three of the top four <laughs> tight ends in pricing doubtful questionable or out in george kittle who is doubtful we have tj hawkinson who appears legitimately questionable um could go either way and this the TJ Hawkinson situation kind of feels a lot like George Kittle from last week in that they tried to push him and play him through um, a soft tissue injury. And then now George Kittle is uh, has just been removed or moved to the IR for three weeks. So um, I'm interested to see if the coaching staff of Detroit sees what happened to Kittle and makes a better long-term longevity <laughs> decision on Hawkinson. But uh, I, that remains to be seen. And then obviously Rob Gronkowski uh, is out uh, with a punctured lung and a bunch of broken ribs that he played through to finish the game, which is incredible. <laughs> it's uh, ridiculous. It's, it's absolutely insane. So that leaves us with Darren Waller as the only tight end above 5,200. We have Dallas Goddard, who's at 5,100 as the only other tight end price above 5K. Darren Waller is in a perceived difficult matchup against Chicago. I actually had a discussion um, on the on the what Discord machine um, in our private kind of contributors channel about why Chicago is a perceived bad matchup for tight ends after you know last year they were a team that we targeted tight ends against. And my only Thing that I could think about, or the only logical reason why that is the case, is because their corners and their safeties have been so playing so poorly this year. So why did we attack Chicago so aggressively with tight ends last year? Well, they had a nails defensive line that generated a lot of pressure on the quarterback, and they had a secondary who played absolutely pretty much lockdown coverage. And what did that do? Well, it naturally filtered targets inside. So it was more of a volume play. Well, this year we're seeing Chicago secondary not playing up to par thus far. And that's not, we're not seeing the natural um, conflagration of targets into the interior of their defense. So with that said, Waller is still the top tight end play on the slate. And he, nobody is going to be playing him. So for me, that is a situation where I, it's very easy to be over the field on Waller this week. And there is a very clear case where Waller is the only tight end to score over 20 points this week. And that is a, again, similar to last week with Kelsey, uh, rest in peace to that play. Um, God, but, 
very similar situation to last week where nobody is playing Waller. He's coming in with like two to 5%, depending on where you look of expected ownership. And it's because primarily because of the state of the tight end position with him being the only pay up tight end and how the rest of the slate comes together, primarily with Derek Henry and Devontae Adams. So when you consider all that, like Darren Waller has a very clear case for you to be overweight on this week. What are you seeing at the tight end position? I mean, yeah, that's like hands down. Absolutely. So Darren Waller is projected about 5% ownership. Um, I don't know what he's going to like. I'm doing MME on Yahoo this week because they're doing another uh, guaranteed overlay tournament. And overlay is awesome. So he's going to be higher on Yahoo because the pricing difference is, is somewhat more fan dualish where the pricing difference between the top end tight end and the cheaper tight ends is much smaller. But at 5% ownership, it's a no-brainer that you want to have more than 5%. So if you're doing like three max, I would say at least one with Waller. If you're doing, you know, 20 entries or 10 or 150, like be over 5% Waller. Um, I'd say Waller clearly has a higher than 5% chance of having a really good game this week. And more importantly... Uh, there's a really good chance that no other tight end scores above 10 or 15 points because there just aren't a lot of good tight ends this week. And it's similar to the way last week set up, right? It didn't work out because Kelsey failed. Um, but last week was similar in that there just weren't a lot of great tight end options on the table besides Kelsey. And so it makes sense to think about like, well, can, if I can play Kelsey and if he's low owned, right? And Kelsey was project, was low owned last week. On DraftKings, like he was like ten or twelve percent, and so like if you can get the the clear best play at a position that has material separation from anyone else, uh, where you could outscore everyone else at the position by ten or fifteen points, and you can get that at an incredibly low ownership, I feel like that's just a play you have to make. It's going to be that play is going to make you money over time, regardless of how Darren Waller performs this week. The question I would ask is: Darren Waller had a game of nineteen targets, and then three games in a row of seven targets, and 19 targets was all the way back in week one. That was his one smash game this year. What would Darren Waller's ownership be if the smash game was week four instead of week one? I would bet it's much higher than 5%. And so point there, point there is I think that there's a fair amount of recency bias holding his ownership down. And like it's sort of astounding to me that it's 2021 and people still want to put, still want to bet real American dollars on guys like Evan Ingram and Ricky Seals Jones, who I've been losing money on for the last five years stubbornly. Um, when instead you could play someone like Darren Waller, who can actually catch footballs. Um, and again, like this is also just a variance position, right? Tight end is the highest variance skill position. Um, and so, like this is another one where it's why would I play the guy who's a mediocre play to begin with, like Evan Ingram or Ricky Seals Jones? And they're going to be the two highest owned guys on the slate at this, at this position. Like I have no interest in playing those guys at all. I would much rather play Waller or uh, on rosters where I don't have Waller. I'd much rather play a tight end that's involved in my game stack. So like I will happily play uh, Cameron Brait. I will happily play Tyler Conklin. Uh, I will play, you know, Cole Komet on a fields roster. I'll play Ferkser. I'll play Dan Arnold. Um, like I would just rather... I'd rather connect my tight end to their quarterback than I would uh, try and, you know, try and guess on the random, you know, the one random tight end who's not a very good player, which applies to both Engram and RSJ. Um, neither of them have really shown any history of NFL success over any sustained period of time over fairly lengthy careers and, and, and at the highest ownership at the position. Like that just seems kind of baffling to me that those are the two chalk guys. Um, 
which I know is funny because I was just talking about how chalk is like usually pretty good now, but I would argue those two pieces of chalk are objectively bad. Um, I also like Noah Fant in the vacuum. I mean, again, we have another situation of, you know, guys out for that offense um, and that streams volume to, you know, the remain to the, those, those who were left standing. Uh, we know that it's really hard to run against Pittsburgh. Um, we know that Teddy Bridgewater is expected to play. It looks like he's clearing the concussion protocol and will be activated, which is better for Fant. Um, Drew Locke might be better for Sutton. I don't know. He's more of a gunslinger. Um, but all the Bridgewater's actually thrown deep a lot this year. But like, I like, I like Fant. I think he's got some ceiling. Um, I like, I want Robert Tanyan in my Green Bay Cincinnati game stacks. Uh, and then the one play I kind of want that like the one, the one solo play that I want that I think um, is my, it might be a terrible play. Um, this might be horrible, but is Zach Ertz who has gotten 15 targets the last two games. Uh, <clears throat> and that could disappear. That, that totally could just be uh, a nothing, right? That um, could, could just be small sample size, but Zach Ertz is he's 3,400. He's projecting for sub 1% ownership at the beginning of last season. Right. Like the week one of last season, Zach Ertz was one of the top three or four price tight ends. He was a top three or four tight end uh, season long draft pick. Um, and, you know, I, I, yes, he did not perform. He got hurt and he hasn't performed. And Dallas Goddard said more has been has been heavily involved there. But like that's quite a long ways to fall. In, in the space of just one year. And so like, I'm, I'm willing to still bet that Zach Ertz uh, is a, and, and they kept him right. He wanted out. Uh, he wanted out of Philly. They kept him. Um, supposedly they, you know, resolved those issues, blah, blah, blah. He's been involved in the offense. Uh, you know, the last couple of games, he's gotten a lot of workload. Like that. I'd like, that's the kind of play where it's, it's clearly high variance. It could be terrible, but I'd rather bet on high variance play like Zach Ertz at under 1% ownership than a high variance play like Ricky Seals Jones or Evan Ingram at like 15% ownership. Yeah. So talking about the chalk this week, what is the realistic 90% outcome? The realistic 90% outcome is like four catches for 60 yards and a touchdown. So like your, your absolute ceiling from those two guys is like 16, 17 points when we have these, still players who are expected to draw volume at the tight end position. So my two favorite um, and tight end position is kind of weird for me this week in that there are two very clear places for me to want to go as far as one-offs are concerned outside of game stacks and outside of Darren Waller. And I want to talk real quickly about associated wide receivers on these two teams first to kind of give the reasons why. So the first is Noah Fant and the second is Mike Gesicki. Noah Fant, basically, we have a thinned out pass catching core. We know that um, basically that team is left with Court and Sutton, Noah Fant, and Tim Patrick. Well, what happened to Court and Sutton? He picked up an ankle sprain on Friday practice. So, one, we don't know if he's going to be playing. He is questionable. Two, we don't know if he's going to have the same effectiveness running primarily. Um, stop and goes slants these routes where he's got to dig his ankle in the ground and plant and explode out of it. So that leads me to both of these. Also, both of these teams are in highly pass funnel matchups, Denver, obviously against Pittsburgh and Miami against Tampa Bay. And then we look at Miami and Devonte Parker started the week as a limited participant with a shoulder injury. And then a hamstring injury was added on Thursday. So it's likely that he picked up the hamstring ailment 
during the week of practice this week. And Devontae Parker is a wide receiver who has had a very lengthy injury history with soft tissue stuff. And if he picked up a hamstring injury midweek, I again have to first question his ability to play and then secondly question his uh, viability from a snap rate and production standpoint. So when these two kind of pieces come together, and then obviously we have the wide receiver injuries to Miami. So if Devontae Parker misses, like Miami is left with Jalen Waddle in a low ADOT role, Albert Wilson out of the demi slot slash 60% snap rate role, and Mike Kosicki as like the primary pass catcher. So this is two, these are two situations which um, could generate a high amount of leverage and um, a high amount of EV from the expected production that couldn't or that could arise late in the week. So uh, both Mike Kosicki and Noah Fant are highly intriguing to me. One, they are in that mid range uh, of pricing with Noah Fant at 4.9 and Kosicki at 4.2. Um, so again, the combination of like leverage and on paper play, so like floor and ceiling, uh, is highly intriguing to me for those two this week. Just noting, I didn't, I didn't see this. Uh, Gasecki's actually had 18 targets in the last two weeks. Um, 24 yes, targets, sir, or, tw- sir. 24 in the last three weeks. He kind of did. He kind of wasn't there in week one, and I have no idea why. Um, but he's been pretty involved in that offense since then. I think he's also running like almost all of his routes uh, lined up as wide receiver. A high portion of them. Um, he has run routes out wide this season, including to slot and in line. So um, I like his usage. Um, his snap rate over the last three weeks has been 64 to 69%. Um, and I would expect if Devonte Parker misses that to increase as well. So definite situations to pay attention to this week. Um, obviously with Will Fuller out Devonte Parker, if he doesn't play, they are left with, um, basically Mac Hollins, Albert Wilson and Jalen Waddle, and then Mike Kosicki. So. I love that. That's where I'm at on tight end. Um, Got anything else at tight end position? Nope. Let's quickly cover defense. I'm sorry we've gone pretty long, uh, but this was a challenging week, and I wanted to make sure that we kind of covered all the theoretical bases, and I think we've done that. But we'll end it around with uh, defense. I'll let you lead with defense. What are you seeing this week? Uh, see the field is again, I, this pay down at defense thing has just been beaten into people's heads so hard that it just creates such great leverage opportunities to not do that. Like some, like Philly is the highest on defense this week on the road, um, against Carolina offense that has been really good road underdogs. Um, I mean, I, I guess I get it. Like it's Sam Darnold can still be mistake prone. Like, okay. Um, you've also got Washington against New Orleans. So again, like what, what do we look for in defenses? We look for a really strong pass rush against a quarter against an opposing team that projects to be passing a lot. New Orleans does not project to be passing a lot. Uh, they, they want to throw very, very little. Uh, we have Jacksonville pretty highly owned again, a t- against a team that doesn't want to pass a lot. The Titans are not exactly a mistake prone offense. Um, they're just going to run it down Jacksonville's throat. So like I just people get fixated on these really cheap defenses. Houston also looks pretty highly owned against a Patriots team that doesn't want to pass. Like you need a team that's going to pass the ball. Um, and so I'm looking now. I will say DraftKings uh, maybe maybe to their credit uh, they've priced up a couple of defenses to really extreme levels, right? Like the New England Patriots defense is 4900, which is kind of insane. 
um, the Tampa Bay defense is 4,700, which is kind of insane. Um, but the defenses that I think make some sense this week, the Arizona defense is going up against a rookie quarterback and an elite pass rush. Uh, is a hot is a significant favorite. We know San Francisco would like to run the ball, but there's a good chance they won't be able to for most of this game. So they're 2,900. Um, <clears throat> we've got the Chargers defense. Yes, Cleveland wants to run the ball also, but when they do drop back, they have a quarterback who apparently doesn't need a labrum to throw a football, which seems kind of essential to me. Um, and so the Chargers defense has quietly been one of the best defenses in the NFL this season. Um, they don't blitz a ton, but they get a lot of pressure just because of the natural um strength of their of their their front four uh and then you've got if teddy bridgewater is not activated uh the pittsburgh defense against drew lock seems really appealing to me um the steelers pass rush is still really good even though the rest of the defense is a little bit weaker um and then you've got uh drew lock is a terribly mistake prone quarterback uh and then finally the raiders the raiders defense has played better than expected. Justin Fields has looked worse than expected. Um, and they're, you know, again, this is another one where the Bears do not, they want to hide Justin Fields, but they probably won't be able to as the game goes on. Uh, and then, sorry, one more is the, is the Vikings defense. Uh, here's another one, significant home favorite. We're going to have Jared Goff, like Jared Goff could drop back, is, is likely to drop back over 40 times this week, I would say, based on how we've seen the Lions play uh, in games that they've been, tra- been trailing significantly. Um, and that just generates so many opportunities for for turnovers and sacks. So those are the de- those are the only defenses in my player pool right now. And I think, I don't know yet which is my favorite. I think it's Arizona, um, but it's probably either Arizona or Minnesota. Yeah, I love it, man. I'm going to go through, I'm going to name the top five defenses from expected fantasy points this week and let's see if we can pick out a trend here number one the las vegas raiders number two the arizona cardinals number three the patriots number four the buccaneers and then number five is the minnesota vikings so we have the two highest priced defenses and then the remaining three from expected points output and this is again from a model that considers all the things that we want to select defenses by are the Raiders at 2,900, the Cardinals at 2,900, and the Vikings at 3,000. So immediately, like that is the area where I'm going to gravitate to on a slate where DraftKings is laughing at pricing a defense higher than LaVisca Chanel. And, <laughs> and then we're left with the field who is wanting to pay down at defense. I will say, if you are going to pay down at defense, at least have it be the Texans who at least have the opportunity to get three to four sacks and maybe a pick or two. Like that is the only defense who, or I guess that is the pay down defense who has the best opportunity to provide even positive points this week. They are not a good play. If you need the salary, play the Texans and don't play the Eagles, please. All right. With that out of the way, I'm attacking those three intermediate price defenses pretty heavily this week. And the Vikings the Raiders and the Cardinals. The ownership is likely going to be lightest on the Raiders at 2,900. Actually, you know what? I've seen it all over. It started off that the Raiders were fairly chalky. Um, what are you seeing? Because I haven't checked over the last about 36 hours. Yeah, so give me a second to poke around and look at like, I'm looking at aggregates and I'm also trying to look at some individuals. I think that Arizona is looking like the lowest currently of those three from what I'm seeing. Okay. Arizona looks like the lowest. About five percent ish. Okay. Looks like Vegas is between ten and fifteen, and Minnesota's ten. Okay. Got it. 
All right. Yeah. Well, that makes me like the Cardinals a little bit more. Um, but I'm likely to be picking and pulling and mixing and matching from those three defenses this week. Um, the salary is not likely to allow me to pay up all the way to the Patriots or Bucks at 4,900 and 4,700. Um, but that said, I am going to be doing everything that I possibly can to stay out of the sub 2,900 defenses. Yeah, agree. I just feel like every once in a while, one of those hits and it sort of reinforces everyone's bias of, aha, don't pay up a defense. And then like, but most of the time, those cheap defenses are cheap because they're going to get trounced. Um, like, I don't think, have we seen a cheap defense hit this year? Not not this year. Um, the closest was probably in week one. Oh, who the hell was it? Because I played them almost 100%. Oh, man, now I can't remember. There was the like Jets a, had an okay a, game last week, I think, right? I yeah, remember. I think they were like, uh, what were they? I don't know. I'd have to look it up. There was one defense I forget. I was like eighty percent on week one that ended up putting up like, I think it was like nine points or something. But yeah, was it the, anyway. was it the Panthers? Yeah, there hasn't. No, they weren't cheap. It might have been no. I don't remember. I digress. Anyway, um, the the big salient point here is you like comparatively this range of of three thousand to twenty nine hundred at the defense position is like a pay down, but people are going to take it to an extreme and play suboptimal plays because um, you think about like the difference between forty nine hundred at Patriots and twenty nine hundred at Cardinals and the Raiders, like. Are the Patriots more than 60%, even 70%? I think, yeah, 70% to outscore even these two teams? Like, I don't know. Like, maybe, but I'm willing to bet on um, the savings and the differentiation here. Yeah, I mean, like, the Patriots and Bucks are so expensive that, like, you would need a shutout and or multiple defensive touchdowns. Like you would need a defense to put up 20 points. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I think would 20, I don't even know if 20 would be enough for those two teams. I think you need like 25. Um, Like it's there's, I mean, I guess, okay, 20, 20 keeps you on pace for 200. Um, But in all likelihood, one of these cheaper defenses is going to get you 15. Um, And so then like, you know, you're, you're, you really need even more than 20 in all likelihood to differentiate uh, if you're playing the Patriots or Bucks. So like, the DraftKings essentially priced them out of consideration. Yeah. And that's something that is definitely interesting. Like if, if I make a roster work with 4,900 left over for the defense and I feel okay about the combination of floor and ceiling, like I will, I will try and have like onesie twosies of Patriots. I'm not going to have any of bucks and majority of my ownership is going to come from Vikings, Cardinals and Raiders. That's all I got at defense, man. That's all I got for the slate overall. You have anything to add before we bring in Aaron for some questions quickly, I guess? Uh, I don't, although Aaron noted, I think he said we already covered all the questions, apparently. <laughs> oh, sweet. That's how oh, we're getting good at this, man. I'm just kidding. I kid. Is I'm that kidding. right, Aaron? Are you there? Do we, do we preempt the uh, we preempt all the questions? That's funny because I did not look at the questions prior to doing this. Yeah, I mean, you guys covered pretty much everything that there was. So um, and I know we're past, you know, kind of our, our 90 minute that we try to keep this under. So I think uh, 
everybody has a pretty good idea. And I, you know, end around came out late and Sonic's MME pool just came out. So we still have some things that people probably haven't had a chance to, uh, uh, digest yet. So if you guys want to end this now, we are good to go unless somebody wants to raise their hand and come up on stage. Yeah. We'll give a couple of potatoes for any hand raises and then we will be out. See the note of course that uh more discussion to come throughout the evening and tomorrow morning in discord so if there's a question that you that occurs later um after you read the after you read the rest of the content in the scroll like you can always hit always hit us up in discord yeah and there are going to be a lot of moving pieces tonight and tomorrow morning so um definitely something comes up hit us up all right looks like we got no hand raises i don't see any all right, y'all. Thanks for hanging out with us on a, another beautiful Saturday. Weather's starting to cool down, so I'm excited about that, living in Arizona. Um, but I will see you guys next week. X, pleasure as always, my dude. Likewise, may the Schefter bombs land in your favor tonight. And <laughs> be ever in your favor. <laughs> All right. Good luck, everyone. See you at the top of the leaderboards and in Discord. See you, man.